Set yourself a New Year goal, they said. It'll be fun. <sighs> Perhaps swimming in the Irish Sea wasn't such a good idea. Set a more achievable goal, like taking control of your finances with personalised money insights in the Bank of Ireland app. It'll help keep track of your spending, like changes to bills, or you might have too many subscriptions. See your tailored money insights, because your financial well-being is our priority. Bank of Ireland. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Terms and conditions apply. Great. There goes my towel. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. The Left Wing, brought to you by Bank of Ireland, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Never stop competing. This is an Irish independent podcast. Ireland had a well-earned Six Nations break over the weekend, but the Grand Slam bid ramps up again this week with Warren Gatlin and his Wales squad coming to the Aviva Stadium this Saturday. We will be discussing that game and plenty more on the latest episode of the Left Wing Podcast. Will Slattery here with you. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Luke Fitzgerald and on the line by Jonathan Bradley. And Jonathan, great to have you back on the show as always. I don't think we've had you on since before the tournament started. I think it was, it was our big preview where we discussed the Six Nations to come. Obviously, things have changed pretty dramatically over the first two weeks. Ireland went from maybe dreaming of a Grand Slam to, to probably expecting one at this stage. You know, what What would you rate the tournament out of 10 from an Irish perspective? Like, is, are you deducting any marks? I don't think you can, really. I mean, the only sort of downside to Ireland's tournament over the past two weeks has been something entirely out of their control in the sense that Hugo Keenan's injured. And you can, even if you like, put a positive spin on that because finding a backup to Hugo Keenan is probably something that was on a list of Irish ambitions that maybe they hadn't really got to over the last couple of years. You could probably make the argument that if Jimmy O'Brien was fit, it was going to be Jimmy O'Brien. But I think there's a real opportunity now in the absence of Hugo Keenan, as much as they'll miss him, to uh, go down that depth chart and try and establish some form of backup. So really, I think when you look at the way the defence has improved from what we've seen in the World Cup, the way the set piece has come on from what we've seen in the World Cup, the way that Jack Crowley has played, filling what was or what the biggest pair of boots in Irish rugby, the emergence of Joe McCarthy, like it's hard to say it's been anything but a perfect two weeks for Ireland. Like the Six Nations as a whole is another matter, but from an Irish perspective, I don't think you could have even dreamed of it going any better. Yeah, it's funny because obviously we. I think my first question, Luke, to you last week was, you know, would anything other than a Grand Slam be a pretty Major disappointment at this stage. And I saw one or two of the comments under our YouTube video kind of saying, oh, that's getting ahead of ourselves. But like, as Jonathan outlines there, like the way the team have been playing, especially in relation to the the people left on their fixture list, like it has been an ideal two weeks. The injuries, as Jonathan mentioned, offers, you know, without sounding like Andy Farland, the opportunities and the adversity, it does offer good opportunities to try out a guy at 15 this coming Saturday, most likely, and potentially Kieran Frawley. Um, to see who could step up in Hugo Keenan's absence. But on the in the round, it's been as good a two weeks as you could have asked for. 
Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, I, I would say maybe the only thing that still is outstanding is probably just figuring out that scrum issue that they're having. Um, I, I kind of refuse to believe it's a personnel thing. I just think because I just think they're brilliant players, all of them, you know, the, the, particularly the front three, uh, probably front four, including Bielham, really, really top-class players. Uh, five, if you include Juice Keller, I'm going to continue on and on here. But uh, I think you get the point. That's the one kind of outstanding issue that I'd like to see them kind of box off, particularly before, you know, the South Africa matches. I think that'll be obviously a key a key issue in those games. But um, overall, uh, really, really good. And I agree with with, with Jonathan, I think, that um, Keenan going down at this juncture is actually a real positive because I think, you, you know, I think you want to probably have him back for, for England. I still think that's a sticky fixture. I don't like going to Twickenham. Um, I still think it's a really difficult place to go. I mean, Ireland have had some success of late over there. Um, but I just feel like that'll be a really difficult one. And I, I can see that being a one-score game, even though they're not playing great. I just feel like defensively and, and, and discipline-wise, if they get those two things right... It'd just be difficult to beat over there, and they could cause us problems at scrum and line out. They're they're pretty decent in both of those facets. So, um, by no means a foregone conclusion, but I think the expectation based on Ireland's performances, but also on their ability and where just where they are from a coaching staff point of view, game plan point of view, uh, they should go on and win the Grand Slam. But um, still a tough one over in Twickenham. I'm worried about that one. Yeah, well, still three games to go, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So oh, but they, they, look, I just yeah. think they, they'll have too much for yeah. Wales, too much for Scotland. Well, it's, not, it's not our job, or it's certainly not my job to invent reasons to, that I think they're not going to win when I do. You know what I mean? Like, Cautious I'm, optimism it, is always yeah, uh, the like, safest route, but I think you're right. We should expect them to do it. Yeah. I think they will expect to do it themselves. Um, but look, just traditionally speaking... Yeah. You I know, said the same thing before the All Blacks game in the World Cup as well. I was like, it's my, my, my job to invent reasons why I think that, and then they didn't. Ah, uh, well, sorry, that was yeah. probably a different kettle of fish. You yeah. know, I mean, they, you'd expect them, let's not go down that yeah. avenue, but I just think that, that one in Twickenham is, is a difficult place to go, yeah. no matter who you are. So um, I'd expect that one to be challenging. Yeah, there's a fullback issue, Jonathan. Like last week, we had a discussion about who might fill the void, and we were kind of going into loads of different options. Now it looks to have been narrowed down to Kieran Frawley, most likely starting in the event of Hugo Keenan being ruled out, which is expected albeit not confirmed at this stage you know what are your thoughts on that do you think is he kind of does he have the caliber to play international rugby at 15 is it just a one week stopgap in your opinion like how are you kind of approaching that part of it yeah I wouldn't describe it as a stopgap necessarily I think it's a good test for him like you know Ireland are 22 point favorites so it's a it's a good test but a qualified one in the sense that he's not being expected to come in and reinvent the wheel I don't think anybody expects him to be anywhere really close to the level that Hugo Keenan is because Hugo Keenan has been just an unerringly consistent performer for Ireland over the last couple of years like you even think back to you know the early tackle that he made against France the tap and go in the build-up to the first try against Italy like he's been an almost understated tone setter in the game so far, and he's a massive, massive player. But I don't think Andy Farrell will ask him to mimic the contribution that Hugo Keenan makes. And he's just he's a different player as well. One thing that'll be interesting, obviously, with you know his versatility and his experience of playing 10, his experience of playing 12, is whether you use him more as you know that second play playmaker type and it's not that Hugo Keenan isn't creative, but I think just the ability to show Wales something different there is going to be something that's really interesting to watch, just utilizing for all these different skill set, I guess. But, you know, 
Hugo Keenan, I think, is maybe further away than the next best player in his position than any player in the Ireland 23. I think that's a fair enough statement to make. Maybe Gibson Park. Maybe. I agree. I agree. Yeah, so like, you know, if we're not so much talking about replacing and we're just talking about, uh, I suppose, filling a different role. And I think it is going to be interesting to see just in terms of coming into the line a little bit more. You know, we don't, he maybe doesn't have huge amounts of gas. He won't cover the same amount of uh, ground in the backfield as Keenan, but there will be a different element there in attack that I think will be interesting to watch. Yeah, it's probably about creating additional options, especially with you know a few injuries. Jimmy O'Brien, like with a neck injury, who knows? Because obviously there's two matches against South Africa in the summer where fullback will be a vital position in terms of how they play the game. So, you know, who's to say Mark Hansen and Jimmy O'Brien are available in the summer? So this person, if it is Kieran Frawley, could get another opportunity if, if you know they need to kind of go that way in the summer. Just to speak about Hugo Keenan again before we go to Kieran Frawley and your thoughts on him playing at fullback. Like he, he has been an outstanding success story of the Andy Farrell era. Like like a, a guy kind of like Gibson Park, who you know while playing for Leinster pretty regularly, it was almost like the fate Andy Farrell showed in him at international level that just saw, saw his game just really develop at a really accelerated rate. Like what does he do at full back that's just been so vital that Andy Farrell of all the players has really has really resisted even kind of experimenting there. I think it's actually his ball handling. I would kind of go further than, than Jonathan. I, I think that Frawley is being considered in that position because he's the most like for like with him. Now, Keenan obviously does have probably, he probably doesn't have the either passing quality of like a, a 10 that say Frawley would have. He probably has a different type whereby he can do it at pace. I think it might be an even harder skill. He can do it at real pace. And because he's got that top end pace and footwork, you really, really have to respect him, which is what I think will make it harder for Frawley. But Frawley might have a bigger array of passing. Um, and he'll certainly be probably looking for a pass first versus probably, even though Keenan has a real strength of passing, he's probably looking for a run first option most of the time. It's, his real, it's a real strength for him as well. But I think it's the passing. I think Ireland have lacked that for a very, very long period of time. It, it, you know, it used to be a tough place playing on the wing. You'd have to go kind of, you'd be looking for more options off 10 than looking for options uh, out, out there. I, I w- would traditionally be my view, uh, unless kind of Zebo was playing. So Keenan does open that up for you. It's, it, 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 it causes more problems for defences. I think he's a key reason, aside from Ireland's development in their front eight in terms of their passing game, I think Keenan has been the real key for them because I'm not sure that um, Henshaw and Ringrose, who've been in the centres, are pass-first players. I think they're really physical, great footwork kind of guys. They get your gain line. But I think Keenan has been the key part to really opening up that, that you know, opening up the total pitch and making Ireland way, way harder to defend against. So I think... I couldn't, you can't overstate how important he is to Ireland's game. I think he's, there's a reason he continues continuously gets picked. I think it's because of that. I think also his fitness levels are off the charts. Um, you know, he covers so much ground back there and he's he seems to be the kind of guy kind of similar to a Bowden Barrett. I think you've heard me talk about Bowden Barrett. I I've always find it weird how, like, he always seems to be in those long passages of, of, of play where the ball's in play for ages, seems to be the guy that makes the key play, whether it's stopping a try or getting a try or, you know, Keenan has that kind of feel for me in terms of, you know, his fitness as well. So, um, 
key guy for Ireland. Um, definitely some some key man risk there, if you like. Yeah. And I do think it's important that they do develop other options there. Jimmy O'Brien seems the most obvious candidate. I thought he was brilliant in the World Cup the last time we saw him in an Irish jersey. Um, so hopefully he he gets back quickly. Zebo is right there for you, um, but for whatever reason doesn't fit the eye and probably age profile at this stage and injury profile working against him maybe. But he's the most like for like, I think. Um, and I think Frawley... Uh, I really like Frawley, but I think he's a 10. Uh, I've always said this in international. I think he'll struggle with the top end, with the, the physicality of being a top end 15. You've got to be a serious, serious athlete back there. You've got to be really strong, really quick and really fit. And you've got to have a real feel for the game allied with all those physical characteristics. He'll have the feel for the game, but I don't think, I think from a, from a, a physical attribute standpoint, I think he's slightly off that. I think he's more in the mold of, of, of that 10, 12 leaning towards 10. I'm not even sure he could make it at 12 over a long period of time uh, in international rugby. I, I just think there is a, a, a specific build for each position in rugby, generally speaking. And I think you've got to specialise. You've heard me say this yeah. forever. Yeah. Well, as you said, it's kind of like this weekend with a view to that England game is where the intrigue comes in because as Jonathan mentioned, Ireland are mega favourites that they should be able to negotiate this weekend regardless of who's playing 15. Yeah. But the way I, I touched on last week, the way Freddie Stewart is playing in the air, like if Kieran Frawley is a full back, you know, he's he's capable in the air, but Hugo Keenan is really rock solid there. Yeah. And that could be an area that they go after whoever plays fullback in two weeks' time. Yeah, it would be what I target, certainly. Um, not that he's got... Like, that's he's how that, not, wants to play the game. Yeah, so but it's not like that he's that weak. Well, well, sorry, every single international team will target this area. Yeah. Wales will target this 100% if it's Frawley. If it's, if, if it's low, I think less so. I think he's pretty strong on the air now. That's a strong part of his game and he's got that cannon of a boot. Now, Frawley has a big boot as well. Um, I, I think Glow is the more obvious candidate. He's got the ball handling ability. He's got the physical attributes. He's used to playing in the backfield. He'll have a feel for the pace of international rugby back there as well. Um, Frawley is clearly a high intellect rugby player. He can play loads of different positions. It requires you to be you know, a smart rugby player to do that. But international rugby is... Uh, it, you got to specialise, honestly, to be a really top-class player. I think that's a survival play versus a flourishing kind of play. You know what I mean? I think Lowe could flourish there, but I just can't see it for Frawley. I hope I'm wrong. But it's not as if he, he can't be like the Leo Cullen, I'm only a 10. No, but he, no, but he should leave. He should have left okay, Leinster. Yeah. 100% he should have left Leinster. Yeah, fair enough. But yeah. like, that's not to say, if, because he can play every other position, there is a temptation to be used like that. You know, no matter where. It shouldn't where, be for him. But he, no matter where he's no, like, but look what is happened. there anywhere you can go look where you're like, Look what happened I'm, him last I'm, week, Will. That is exactly, what happened to him last week, not getting selected for the Italian game is exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. That had to hurt. That had to hurt. He was he was in the squad against France, but doesn't fit the bill because he doesn't specialise in a position um, for the Italy game when you're looking for a proper replacement. And he'll never be in the team week to week on week because he doesn't play a specific position for Leinster. And that's going to be the, I've I've called this for him a long yeah, way out. To be yeah. fair, no, hard to argue with that. Jonathan, is there anything? Kind of other talking points ahead of the weekend that is intriguing you. Obviously, you mentioned the the kind of the the, the favoritism of Ireland. Wales named their team today. You know, going through the team sheet, like Warren Gatland is really operating with a, a substandard squad to what he would have had when he was here, you know, f five, six years ago. Like, well, even last year, well, like yeah. the team last year was on its last legs, obviously. But like, you look at the experience of that team, and I was writing a wee bit about this today. So, like, I've got the numbers to hand. Like, the team that Wales fielded against Ireland in this championship last year had 952 caps. The team that Warren Gatlin named today for Saturday has 499. That's almost half the caps 
gone. In Most the of those are George North as well, or like a huge chunk yeah, of those. 119 are yeah. of those are from George North. Yeah. So, like, when you look at the team that opened the Six Nations last year, if you're a casual rugby fan who tunes in for the Six Nations, whenever this game starts on Saturday and they're panning down the line of the Wales team, if you're a casual rugby fan, you're not going to know who these guys are. But equally, and you can almost make the argument that this is another incredible job by Warren Gatland. He's come in, he's cleaned house, he's made comments in the press that have sort of intimated that this shouldn't be being done now, but it wasn't done under Wayne Pivak, and he's sort of having to carry the can for the work that wasn't done in the three years that he wasn't there. And expectations have lowered to the point, rightly or wrongly, that Wales have lost two games to open the Six Nations. And they're probably the team that is being talked about most positively outside of Ireland in the whole competition because of how they've stayed in games, how they almost came back against Scotland, the way they hung in the fight against England at Twickenham. And there's almost a feel-good factor around Welsh rugby that hasn't, you know, certainly wasn't there this time last year whenever we were talking about strike action. So I think like whenever you see that team sheet that Wales put out this afternoon, it really brings home just how Wales have had to clean house in the last uh, in the last twelve months. It's uh, I I actually don't really know if I can recall seeing anything like it. Maybe you could go back to uh, you know Ireland in two thousand, bringing all those young guys in. But um, this to me even seems more dramatic than that it's incredible when you go down the team sheet and you know you take out the likes of George North just to see the lack of experience and we're not even so much talking about guys that are inexperienced at international level like the sort of cadre of Cardiff players that have come through in this championship aren't even experienced at uh, regional level you know they haven't got that many URC games behind them but here they are playing test rugby sink or swim sort of stuff but to my mind, over the two games, even though they have lost them, like there's a, a number of guys there that have given a good account of themselves as well. Yeah, I actually agree with Jonathan. Like when I, like the, they've lost, I think the two games by a combined three points. Like if you looked at the, just the team sheets for both of those fixtures, you would have expected Wales probably to get hosed in, in both of them. And I know they were 27 nil down to Scotland, so it looked like it was going that way, and they fought back, you know, bravely in the second half. But like as Jonathan says, they had doubly the amount of caps last year, Six Nations. But they were brutal in last year's Six Nations. So I think he, Warren Gatlin was clever. or It's necessity as well, but you're going to have a lot more leeway if you're playing all these young guys who are very inexperienced versus and losing if it's close versus playing with the established guys if, if they're at the end of the line anyway and you're not going to get the results. You might as well look to the next generation or at least try to discover if the next generation can be anywhere near as good as, as what he had you know, in his first tenure. Yeah, and look, you think he's been forced into, but you know, it's also kind of a smart move as well because he starts from such a low base. Uh, you know, it really manages the expectations, and you know, everything that anything that he does, it's positive, even though it's two losses are viewed more positively. Um, so that's definitely what's transpired. Um, I'd be a little bit worried though. I, I kind of feel like he's kind of worked some kind of miracles that whatever happens when they come into Wales camp. Um, hasn't really matched up with what's ha- happening in the regions. Uh, my real concern for them is like they kind of go down the Scotland route where they end up with kind of two decent regional teams. Um, 
in the long, so kind of medium to long term. I just don't know if the the model is really working there. It seems like there's a lot of unhappy parties. Um, you know, they've come back together now. It seems to be settled down, but I just can't see it lasting. I think um, they've kind of paid the price for what's happened at regional level. Like if you look at Ireland, Ireland's consistency, I think, has really risen over the last 20 years with how solid a performance that the provinces have put in, you know, with great attendance generally, um, you know, lots of kind of interest levels, lots of success, um, maybe not as much as we think we'd like at times, but generally speaking, very consistently competing for for, for top honours, um, you know, in league and cup campaigns. Um, so I, I think Ireland's consistency is really built on that. Of course, good structures at the top as well, but um, I'd worry about Wales. I think he's doing a, a good job to start the competition, but I think they could get they could get beaten well here in the weekend. I think, and they should get beaten well. Yeah, well, this is their toughest game by far so yeah. far. Like, I think four teams has always seemed quite a lot for the the talent in the in the Welsh club game. Well, they've had they see they have massive playing numbers, and they still kind of have this weird thing where some of the clubs I think still have like bigger attendances yeah. than some of the regional teams. Your is it Ponty Preed and yeah. Ponty? Yeah, there, there's the I think the Ospreys, whatever where wherever the Ospreys kind of sit is a really contentious kind of setup. You know, it sits between two real traditionally big teams. And it's never really caught on there. Even when they had the kind of Galacticos there, there yeah. was kind of poor enough attendance numbers. So um, it's a weird kind of setup there. Um, you'd hope that they don't. It's, they're pretty key. You hear some kind of rumblings always about them joining the English league. Yeah, I don't know if that'll actually help but them at all. It, say if you look at the English league, for instance, like when three teams, you know, it was bad, sad to see three teams go away last year, but the quality across the board has improved as a result. Like yeah. there's more quality concentrated in a smaller amount of teams like three Welsh teams would strike you'd have three comp much more competitive teams rather than four teams yeah. that aren't doing very well I feel like if they spread that talent over three teams it might just work better for yeah them. it might but like you're still reducing the po the, the the possibility of or, or, sorry the availability of slots for people to play against good opposition as well so you're already down yeah, no, you know, another sword. 23 yep. people that, that are playing consistently against a Leinster a Munster a, you know whoever an Edinburgh Glasgow like kind of pretty good teams um, and you see it's worked reasonably well for Scotland but they have to be pretty creative about how they kind of get players in and different things like that you yeah. know I, I think they seem to be in a better place Scottish rugby to my mind is actually in a, in a, de in a pretty decent place um, well, they have two clubs who are both very competitive they're both yeah. very competitive whereas I look at Wales and I'm thinking God like, yeah. what's you know where do they go from here you know um, um, Cardiff looks the Cardiff and Newport are actually the only ones that are kind of really, I think, pretty consistently viable for whatever, whatever. Like Scarlets was always a brilliant rugby region, but have kind of fallen off. Um, and the Ospreys, you know, had some success, but as I said, traditionally they kind of fall. They're on a bit of a fault line between two really good clubs that still get reason like more better attendances than the Ospreys get. Um, but I think Warren Gatlin's got a really, really difficult job. I think, you know, no better man to kind of galvanize a group and get everyone working in the same direction. But I just think at a point, there'll come a point where there's only so much you can do with with the kind of talent they have. Now, I know the caps are pretty low. Um, you know, probably, what is this? Is it 499? So whatever it is, 370, you know, of caps amongst the other 22 on, on the team. Pretty low. But still, you'd expect to kind of recognize... Or you know, to further be a, a few more guys that you're going to go. Okay, that guy's a serious international. Uh, you just don't see it there. Or losing resound before the tournament as well. Not like helpful. One of your few marquee players. And to be fair, like Jonathan touched on, like 
going back to 2000 with Ireland, like Warren Gatlin has backed youth in the past and it's, it's you know, served them pretty well. Like, you know, even Sam Warburton, Dan Lilly. Had but but he didn't really get the benefits no, of that Irishman. So the next, guy with, yeah, <laughs> the next guy in Wales might, <laughs> yeah. might reap the benefits, that you know? Be, yeah, exactly. I think <laughs> all those guys as well were like really well flagged through yeah. the system, both for Ireland and for Wales, you know, like, those guys all came in and yes, they were young players, but they had big reputations and they'd been sort of earmarked as the next generation for quite a while. And there probably isn't that sense with these players that are coming through now. And like Ruddock, Ruddock had that little bit of success before he came in, you know, won the Grand Slam. But, you know, uh, I I agree with you, Jonathan. I think it's a great point. You know what I mean? I just, there's, there's nothing really flagged or he's going to be the guy who's really bringing these guys on from a really low base, isn't he? Yeah, so like that then goes back to Luke's point about, you know, how are these players going to develop at the regions and the best way for them to develop into those sort of test stars when they haven't necessarily, and I I don't mean that to sound disrespectful, but when they haven't necessarily been earmarked, is that coming through the system? Because you look at their under-20s and really sort of every year they look to have a couple of players, but probably not enough coming through at that at that age level as well so um it's a bit it's a huge job for Warren Gatlin but he does seem to be almost relishing this idea relishing the idea of of starting again and sort of as you guys said like it's clever enough to have done so and to lower expectations to the level that he has but equally I don't think he had any other choice you know we haven't really talked about uh, the selection policies and the ever-changing selection policies about how many caps you have to have. And, you know, now we see guys born in Wales going to English clubs earlier and earlier and earlier. And, uh, you know, they're never going to have the opportunity to earn the amount of caps. So I guess it's how they uh, fix that problem moving forward as well. It's going to be a big question to answer. Yeah, it's a daunting job he has in his hands, but a daunting task this weekend as well. I wanted to talk to Bodhi about... Ireland's record at the Aviva Stadium. It's funny because, like, the atmosphere has been under the microscope, you know, generally, but also recently, like, you know, I know Rory O'Connor, our colleague, was writing about it about two weeks ago before the Italy game. The the atmosphere was, you know, pretty sedate, as I'm sure most listeners have heard about or if they were there, kind of experienced. But going back 10 years from the start of 2014, Ireland's record is 50 wins out of 55 internationals in the Aviva Stadium. So they've, they've kind of turned it into, like, the best home advantage in world rugby like I know is it, is it better than South Africa's well Eden well see the dip, they, they don't play every game in the same stadium so it's oh, not yeah, exactly yeah, fair, apples yeah. and apples like obviously Eden Park the All Blacks haven't lost there in the professional era but they don't play every game there if they did they wouldn't have this unbeaten record like Ireland play every game in the Aviva 50 wins out of 50 one draw and four defeats going back over 10 years to the start of 2014 like that is a phenomenal home record like you wouldn't you wouldn't kind of think of it like that but yeah, although, I get it. Do you know, it's a big number, isn't it? Like, it's a pretty impressive number. And uh, yeah, when you say it there, it's like unbelievably impressive. Yeah. And, no, sorry, it's unbelievably impressive. But I kind of do know that Ireland are bloody hard to beat at home. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I would say, for example, like, you know, South Africa, hard, like, I, I would say they'll they'll beat us at home. But I would say if they came here, we'd beat them too. Do you yeah. know that kind and of way? we have them, they haven't beaten us in the Aviva in over 10 years. So. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So, like, I, I, I'm not surprised by that stat. Yeah. So, but it's I, more so that people would say, because actually a listener posted this in as well I don't recall his name so apologies but he said like Ireland have like the worst atmosphere and the best home record or very, um, although I would say in the big games those two things probably do go hand in hand because people turn up expecting Ireland to win and it's like it seems counterintuitive but because people expect Ireland to win they're almost not in the game from the off they're almost waiting to be 
entertained. Like there's so many other factors, most of them, I suppose, down to ticket prices and uh, things like that. But I do think because Ireland are so good, it hurts the atmosphere because it's only whenever you get the sense that the crowd comes into it more when they feel like the team needs them. So like in the big games against South Africa or New Zealand or England, um, France last year, but that was sort of a weird one because there were so many uh, French in the crowd that day. Like it's really only the big games where the atmosphere does sort of kick up a notch. And that's going back really through the entirety of the Joe Schmidt tenure and now into Andy Farrell. But like, as I said, there's an awful lot of reasons and I know like Rory's written about a lot of them and, uh, it's a very difficult thing to get right, I think, in general. But I do think that because there's just this almost weight of expectation that you're not going to a participatory event, you're going to watch something and be entertained by it rather than be a part of it, I think does contribute to a bad atmosphere. Some of the, I would say, though, some of the New Zealand matches over the last 10 years where we're really competing with them, you know, they're kind of tight matches, Um some of those atmospheres, they're some yeah. of the best atmospheres I've ever been at in any sport I've ever been to. Now, I know someone will say, I've never been to like Celtic Park or, you know, or Parkhead, sorry, I can't remember what it is, whatever, Celtic, anyway. Celtic Park. Yeah, Celtic Park, sorry. I've never been there or some of those kind of magic places. But I've been to Old Trafford and, you know, I know ah, that's Redellas. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> you're probably a Liverpool supporter, yeah. But, um, you know, I, you know, Anfield and that apparently is off the charts, like nonstop kind of thing. I know they've had some issues this year, but, um, yeah, I, some of those atmospheres um, in, uh, the Aviva are unbelievable. I found them definitely. I know as a player in 2013, that drawn match, I've never, like, that was one of the only times I've played in a stadium outside of the Millennium where I was it like, I can't draw, hear. actually, you know. Oh, my apologies, if you, if you actually, again, sorry. If you the conversion prematurely, it actually would have been a draw. If one of my colleagues had to make a defensive error just before, I won't name any names, but, <laughs> um, that person knows who they are. They didn't apologize in the change room afterwards. Silly me did. Um, but, um, the, yeah, I, the Millennium Stadium is the only place I've ever heard louder than those couple of occasions where in, in, in New Zealand matches only really yeah. have I heard it like the Millennium. The Millennium is outstanding. I think people are kind of more saying that like the average atmosphere, obviously like when it's fever yeah. pitch, it's, you know, England, France, All Blacks, it can be really good. But like for, you know, your your standard game. Does but rugby really have that though? He, I would say that's true of like any stadium really. Like is in any mm. Six Nations team playing Italy in a home game, the atmosphere doesn't tend to really ratchet up a whole pile. Like I, I don't think the atmosphere is anywhere near as bad as Rudd definitely thinks it's, because we've discussed this before. Like I think it's, it's not as bad as other people seem to think. Other people who go to these games seem to think the atmosphere is absolutely dreadful. I, I, I don't think it's that bad. Do you know what I would say as well though? International rugby is probably there just isn't that many... Sometimes you get good, like reasonably good travelling support, right? But like if your team is doing well and Ireland have a very, like obviously a brilliant record, if they're kind of beating the opposition well and there's only one team kind of like... like there's not as much stuff to cheer about, I don't think. You know what I mean? Um, and as you say, the tense, the, that kind of tense bit that you need um, isn't there probably as well. Um, you know, like there's tension for the big New Zealand games, I think, and for like South Africa and, and some of those other games. But... It's probably just not there. And rugby is a very different spectator sport. Like there's kind of more stop, more stoppages with kind of scrums and different things like that. Um, you know, line outs, malls. There's lots of like, it's kind of a technical game to watch. It's kind of a bit slower than say football. It's kind of constant. Even if you think of Gaelic football, kind of constant hurling. Like it's constant. And there's generally two teams. Like you might have, not. it's probably not 50-50, but it might be like kind of 60-40, 70-30 at some of the games. So regardless, if one, like there's always a bit of noise when one team's doing well, if, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah. It doesn't have, really have that aspect to it, I don't think, particularly in internationals. Um, 
I, maybe I'm wrong yeah. on that. It's just an observation. I, oh, Jonathan, I also think that like if the atmosphere was so bad, would it not have like a more tangible impact on the team's results? Like as I said, you know, under Andy Farrell, for instance, they've won 23 out of 24 home games. The only defeat was to France during COVID with no spectators. So they actually haven't lost at home with spectators since that England game under Joe Schmidt, which is, you know, you're going back five years. Like, that's a stellar record. Would it not have more of a tangible impact if the atmosphere was so kind of bad, basically? I don't know. Like, Luke could probably speak to it better than I could, obviously, having played. Um, (laughs) But I don't know. I I think this Ireland team is so good and so much better than, um, sorry, so good and a good degree better than the teams that they're often playing that I don't know how much it matters. And that's what I'm sort of saying about that. I think that the crowd senses that of when they do feel like they could be that extra 1%, then you do get the increased atmospheres that you get for those, uh, those all blacks games and uh, England games, France games, you know, whenever it does sort of feel like it's really in, in the balance, I think you do get the atmosphere. I think, what Rory's talking about, and I think what other people have sort of alluded to, is that there's a certain sense of a special Six Nations atmosphere that you get in Murrayfield and Cardiff and uh, and Paris that you don't get in Dublin for Six Nations games that aren't the big ones. And I think that's something that it is disappointing, almost to what you say, the fact that this Ireland team that has such this this amazing home record doesn't almost get the uh, the reception that it deserves when it plays at home. But like personally, I think genuinely that it comes down to the ticket prices. I think the ticket prices price out too big a slice of the population. I think you lose a lot not having like that sort of louder as it was back in the day schoolboy section. Like the first Six Nations game I ever went to was like, and it must have been. 24, 25 years ago now, but it was like in that schoolboy section. The atmosphere in there was always great, I thought. But just with the way it's become, and this goes for a lot of things, the way it's become such an event and it's become a day out and sort of like I said before, it doesn't feel in the main like it's a participatory thing. It goes, It's something that you're there to watch rather than be a part of or... Don't want to sound too old, but like there to take a picture of yourself there and put it on social media, sort of thing. Like it doesn't certainly to me doesn't feel like it would have done whenever I first started going uh, to games. But I, I think I, part of that's just a change in the way people go to and experience events as well. I, I'd suggest though as well that it's not even. I don't even think those people can afford to go. Like I don't think you know. It's like it, it's if there's two of you going to the game, it's two hundred and forty quid for decent tickets. Like it's it's very it's a punchy day out. Like yeah. you know what I mean? And it's, that's it's if all, you're only going to the game. Like if you're coming from down that's what here, I mean. They're the, that's the tickets. That's hotel the, prices have been hiked up to the nth degree. Then the cost of the tickets is the least of your worries as well. It's kind of like it's the one you kind of bring your 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 wife to or your partner I think it's become that kind of thing like it's and it's and it's it's a nice atmosphere it's not aggressive you can drink during it you know it's like it's it's it is I agree it's kind of a nice day out like there's people the drinking during the game is probably something that annoys the real purists because there's people you know coming up and down grabbing points you're standing up you're up and like there's a bit of that side of it too but those that that probably doesn't bring you you would think the extra drink would bring a more raucous crowd but it actually doesn't you know what I mean it makes people sedate yeah Yeah. it kind of just takes a little bit away from it and it's more 
I, I just don't think rugby outside of like Wales and maybe South Africa, it's, and maybe, well, I suppose New Zealand to a certain extent, but they watch it, they're really watching it, I think, in New Zealand. They're like the technical, they don't want to be cheering during it. They really want to watch the technical aspects of the game. But like South Africa has a bit of that element. I think uh, Wales has a bit of that element where you kind of could have like the kind of common folk in there as well. Do you know the kind of way where you have people like, it is there's tickets go out to the clubs. People can get it through the clubs. Like real rugby supporters can kind of go to it. It's not just people, it's not just the kind of, like 120 quid a ticket does rule out people who are really like proper rugby supporters who are going down to their club week in, week out. I, I think anyway, well, I might yeah, be wrong with like, that. The Aviva Stadium is 15,000 smaller than the second smallest stadium, which is Murrayfield in the tournament. Like, so having such a reduced capacity compared to the other nations, like, we saw at the World Cup, the appetite is definitely there for more people. So, like, <laughs> only in Ireland could you have one section yeah, of the stadium one tiny little stand. with ten rows of but seats. Think about it, if you have fifteen thousand more honestly. tickets that you could sell. Now, I do find it. I don't think it would be like cheaper tickets for clubs. I think it would just be more corporate tickets sold. To be honest, I don't actually think this would solve ah, the problem. Fifteen thousand more per game. I don't think. They I could. think it would be all corporate. Do be, you? I really do. I honestly think it would be ah. hoovered up with really high ticket prices. I don't think it actually would. Because uh, someone said this to me today when we have this conversation. Oh, if the stadium was bigger. You know, we could sell more cheaper tickets or, or get more different kind of. Ah, uh, surely they could get. So you could have a schoolboy section then. No, you could. You, but they, you could. You don't think so? You wouldn't. I don't think they would. No. Really? It's yeah. so much many people out there who are willing to pay the money. Clearly, uh, it's the craziest stadium design of all time. Like it's uh, it's the silliest. I, I genuinely only in Ireland could you have that. I, I, it's the, I find it depressing to look at. Every time I look at that, I'm like, what? Like, who okayed that? Like, who who didn't shell out whatever it is? Like, I have family living behind, kind of like my father's family, and they would have bitten their hand off for a good price for that. Like, it, it, absolutely insanity to not move the stadium back or move it back the other way. It, like, it just seems like a missed opportunity. It's when an we know the appetite, insanity, The appetite really. to only have, like, the idea that Ireland Stadium is 15,000 smaller than Scotland's and the appetite we have for rugby here now is just... It is a massive misopportunity. And the other thing I wanted to say, just you mentioned the New Zealand supporters there, because I remember Kean, who was over there, you know, covering it, was taken aback at the atmosphere at the Ireland Tests when the game was really in the balance and it was really dramatic. So it was pretty sedate there as well. So maybe it's not just. Well, I think they're really watching the game. And I think there's, because it's, as I said, it's a very technical game with lots of stuff going on. Like there's loads of, co there's a big cohort of the stadium that'll be like, you know, a reasonable size thing, looking at the scrums, look what's happening there, looking at line outs, thinking, you know, there's, there's lots to watch and kind of. You're not like it's. Whereas I think in football, because it's kind of there's like big buildups. You know, like when the when the when there's kind of a build up in play, there's not a massive amount to really cheer. But fans will be up kind of cheering to get the atmosphere going for their team. Um, like the only time you really think about it, like like there's there's what is there in most games? There are probably three goals in most games. That like in you know three scoring opportunities probably you know three scores sorry in a game where you're, the crowd goes absolutely wild. But like for the most part, like the the, the soccer supporters are just different to rugby supporters. You know what I mean? And there's probably less to really cheer in the build up play, but they make the atmosphere. I think they're they're conscious of it being in a big event and making it an event. Whereas rugby, I think, is just a little bit different in that sense. To the question I asked Jonathan about like why why doesn't the lack of an atmosphere have a more tangible impact on the team given their record is so strong? Like you've obviously played in the Aviva you've played for Ireland in great atmospheres and probably atmospheres that weren't great like how big of an impact does it have? I don't know if it has a big impact like if you think of Edinburgh all those years remember Edinburgh were quite a difficult team to go ahead and beat like you might have a way better team than them yeah, they were pretty good, but not that good. Um, and you'd never lose them at home. You'd whoop them at home. But you might lose the odd game over at Edinburgh when it was kind of like kind of cavernous type atmosphere in Murrayfield with like 5,000 people going to the game and like echoes around it. The kind of, I can't think of another word, but the dearth of kind of atmosphere um, made it a tricky place to go and play. You just weren't kind of used to it. So 
sometimes the familiarity can play to your advantage, even if there's not like a, you know, a really kind of buzzing or kind of tense atmosphere in a stadium. Do you know, like I always thought that worked to Edinburgh's advantage that they were kind of more used to that. Not that Ireland are playing in like that kind of environment. Well, people, people, that's what people are saying. People are saying it's like a library. It's like, yeah, you know. there's a little bit of that. But I think if you're going to fo- like GAA or hurling games, you might compare it to that. Like obviously you can't compare it to soccer. Like football's just, different level of atmosphere you know and people are so people are spending every cent they have to go to some of those games like the fanatics do you know what I mean whereas it just, you won't have that cohort in, at rugby games I don't think so um, yeah it, it's very difficult to compare it I think it can play to your advantage the familiarity in the stadium anyway you know li, you know you're at home they've got a really good setup in Carton House in the Shelburne you know, like they have a nice kind of build up they know the stadium really well I still think there's a good atmosphere at the crucial times in the big games, which is what really matters. And Jonathan's point about them being quite a bit better than some of the other opposition that they face there is probably a key point too. There's never really much of a concern over the last couple of years against Italy, against Wales, generally against Scotland. They've beaten them pretty well. It's only the Wales, England, New Zealand, South Africa games that you kind of be concerned. And I think the atmosphere is good in those ones. Yeah, well, as I said, 50 wins out of 55. Like, it's such a ridiculous record written down. I'm now kind of somewhat worried I wrote it down wrong <laughs> yeah. from earlier. Just but, when Gatlin rolls into town. Well, I don't yeah. know, but I, I, you know, I, th- I think I've gotten that right. Anyway, and I think it's 23 wins out of 24 for Andy Farrell yeah, at home since he took charge, yeah. which is phenomenal. Um, Jonathan, the other kind of big game of the weekend, Scotland and England could have obviously title implications depending on how things shake out over the next few weeks. How do you see that one going? Like, I feel like there's, you know, the English are calling back. I think Manu Tuilagi, Ali Lawrence, a few other guys available. But I, I, I think Scotland at home might have too much of them. But what's your view on that one? I think the most uh, sort of interesting element of it is how the England English defence is going to grow under Felix Jones game to game because it has looked. I think there's been signs there that they're really taking on board what he's what he's been bringing, and I think they're going to get better at that. Through through the tournament, Scotland. Whatever you want to say about them, their attack is still good. Like they do still have one of the better attacks in this competition. So it's just going to be who gets the edge there. I think it's going to be is going to be the key. I would agree with you. I, I would see Scotland uh, Scotland just edging it. I think, and um, which obviously knocks the knocks the English Grand Slam off course, and we just uh, just leave Ireland as the only one chasing it. Yeah, because if England do get a win, it sets up that game, presuming Ireland beat Wales. Uh, you know, that game up in Twickenham to be oh, be unbelievable atmosphere for that. But like, do you think England will go to Murrayfield and win? I don't think so, no. I think Scotland will have a little bit too much for them. I, I just don't really rate the English team that highly at the moment. I think they could be difficult to beat at home, but I don't think away from home that they'll have the... I just don't think they'll trouble Scotland enough. I think Scotland will have as... Scot- I, I think Jonathan's completely right. I think their attack is probably... Maybe not second best. Maybe it is second best. It's very close with France. Uh, probably second best in the competition. Very close with France. I think when France are fizzing and if they had full complement with Dupont and and Entomac, they might be a very different kettle of fish. I think they would be. Sorry, um, absolutely. But at the moment, they don't look. They're they're kind of a bit disjointed. They don't look. They have the danger men, but they just don't look as cohesive going forward. Scotland look more cohesive. Finn Russell's playing well. The, that's a dangerous centre partnership that they have, and they have the finishers out wide. I mean, whatever about. Van der Merwe's kind of um, uh, frailties in defence, like he certainly doesn't have them in attack. Like he's a bloody hard man to take down and he's in open field. He's really, really dangerous. So if their pack get kind of anything close to party, which you probably expect them to do at home, you know, dangerous assumption to make with this Scotland team over the last couple of years. Um, 
you know, they seem to be better, way better in that kind of underdog type um, mentality, but they won't be this weekend. I think they'll be tipped to win it. I think they should yeah. win it. And um, I don't see it by a landslide. I agree with as well. She's a keep agreeing. I'll have to disagree with you on something, Jonathan, but I think... The, Wait until the Ulster yeah, game. And maybe yeah, the, I just think the defensive stuff is... Um, I think they will continue to get better at that over the competition. I still think there's too many large portions of the game where they're kind of falling off and you have to be so accurate in that kind of defensive um, system that Felix Jones is trying to implement there. They don't have enough of that as of yet. Um, and I think kind of new bodies in might not actually help that. They might make it a little bit more difficult to kind of get you know, get up and running, you know, like you think of Tulagi coming in, that's a key role that he plays in a key position for any defensive uh, system. So it might be difficult for him to get up to speed straight away. So um, I think they will continue to improve, but not, en not enough time. And I think, yeah, it might make for, look, it'll be a bounce back for them at home. Still a great atmosphere, but not the fizzing one that we're hoping if they do get the win on the weekend that we expect just, with the Ireland game. Yeah, just looking like, you know, Gregor Townsend's record against England is actually really strong. Like they've won the last three Six Nations games against England. Mm. He's won four out of the six with one draw. David, I was going to say the draw as well. Yeah, yeah, with the draw. So he's actually only lost once mm. to England. Like to be to be England three times in a row as a Scotland head coach is actually like a major, you know, feather in his cap. Obviously, to be going four in a row at home where they're their favourites. Now they're zero and eight against Ireland with Gregor Townsend. That's the big one where like his record against France is pretty good as head coach as well. The Irish record is just abysmal. But mm. England, they really have had their number over the last couple of years. So that'll be an interesting one. Just to, to, to kind of go back to Ireland, Jonathan. Actually, because there's one thing I did want to ask you. I kind of for, forgot before I went on. The Scotland game. Any kind of what kind of team do you want to see pick this weekend? Do you expect to kind of revert on mass to that team that played France? You know, Guy Ringrose is available as well, obviously now, which he wasn't for the first two weeks. Um, That's the big call because I think it hasn't really been talked about that much, but I think Henshaw's been brilliant um, in this championship, coming back into the side, and it's if Ringrose is back. How much credit does Ringwood have in the bank? Obviously, Aki as well had a knock as well. So I think that's the big call. It almost feels like, um, you know, we had this debate an awful lot, say, three years ago, but the three of them never seemed to be fit at the same time. And it almost feels like we're getting back to that because I think it would be, I just think it would be massively harsh on Henshaw to drop out at this stage. But I think... Farrell has obviously more often than not gone with that partnership of uh, of Aki and Ringrose and being rewarded with it. So I think that's uh, that's a huge call. I think, and that's probably the that's the one that I think I'm most interested to see whenever the team is named on Thursday. I think it should be uh, Bundy Aki and Robbie Henshaw with Ringrose on the bench. I, I just thought you were going to say something different. 100 agree with you. Yeah, because I just think, as Jonathan said, I thought I think Robbie Henshaw has been the best rugby he's played. You know. Not to be fair, he's an unbelievable player and plays great rugby generally, but I think he's in a real rich vein of form as well. And Bundyaki has looked as good as he did at the World Cup. I just think, and they they have a, I think going back to their Connacht days, as a duo, as a partnership, they have real good chemistry as well that like yeah. manifests itself on the pitch too. Obviously, everyone knows how good Gary Ringrose is, but he's been injured. He missed two weeks. I don't think he deserves to just walk back into the team, even though his pedigree is stellar. Have him on the bench this weekend, and then obviously if he comes on and plays really well, Twickenham can be another debate. But I think for this weekend, I think it has to be Bundy Aki and Robbie Henshaw. Yeah, and he gives you lots of options, you know. Because like I, I like tr to be honest with you, if I was picking a team um, with just Keenan out, um, you know, Henshaw slotting in on the right wing would be ideal. But the problem for them is that Hansen isn't there, so he couldn't go back to fullback, and you can't really you'd be switching too many around. I, I think what you would ideally do is if you're picking from, say, Hansen's fit, I think you might put Ringrose on the right wing, keep Henshaw on 13, 
put Mac Hansen at fullback and keep low there. But if like what what I would do personally is if if it wasn't for the foot, like so you obviously want to have Ringrose obviously is a right footed player, but you really don't want to have him on the left wing because it just reduces down your options. It's not the end of the world. You can still play the position without being left footed, but it's just not ideal. Um I, I think I'd I'd have low if I was picking my best complement or, or my best team I'd have ring rows on the left wing and I'd put low back to full back would be what I do because I just think Ensho deserves to stay in the position I do agree they have a nice chemistry and he's playing brilliantly and he's so physical um he really suits Ireland's Ireland's play so I'd be moving ring rows to uh, to one of the wings ideally with Hansen and um with sorry Hansen and um, Keenan out, so yeah, that, that's what I would do if he had the left foot, but he doesn't. So I think on that basis, I think he's probably right. But he, leaving him on the bench does give you more options, I think. Um, and you could probably go with a six-two split if you wanted. You'd be pushing it, but um, it's it's certainly an interesting call. Ringrose definitely is the more natural at at thirteen. Um, uh, I think obviously you know, probably not helping him. We wouldn't even be discussing this if Nina Bar hadn't moved him to the wing, but he is brilliant there and has, you know, he's got the pace, he's got the fitness, he's got the kicking game. He's great under the high balls, extremely brave. Um, so he's a, he could be a great winger too. So I, I don't know, it's it's a it's a real conundrum for the coach, mm. I think. Uh, my sense is that knowing Farrell just a little bit uh, from his previous selections that we're all watching, and I think everyone's of the same opinion, he'll probably stick with Henshaw, I think. Won't he? Is that, is everyone of kind of, like, just based on I what we're, so. just based on observing serving him over the last couple of years even though Ring Rose is definitely a more natural 13 you know he plays yeah. there all the time you're picking between unbelievable players as well nice you, problem to have yeah it's a great problem yeah, to have. It is. Jonathan like will they go 6-2 split do you think because you know if Frawley is full back and like Jack Crowley's obviously starting out half like I don't see the point in putting Harry Byrne on the bench as well and, and, and maybe you can go with just a, a scrum half plus Gary Ringrose maybe and then it li- le- allows you to have Ryan Baird and Jack Conan because otherwise it looks like Ryan Barry potentially might be squeezed out of the 23, even though he's been playing, I think, really, really well. What's your view on that? For me, it just makes no sense to have three out-halves in the 23. Yeah, it just depends, I suppose, on the knock suffered by Keelan Doris. I know, obviously, he was pictured uh, not training today and Simon Easterby has sort of said that they claimed he's fit, so I'm just going off that. Yeah, yeah. Let's assume he's fit. Yeah, let's assume he's fit for this. Yeah, Yeah, if if he's fit, I would go 6-2 to get uh, just a greater percentage of your better players in I think um, if he's not then obviously I think you're looking at Jack Conan starting at number 8 and the trickle down there being that Baird's your uh, soul is forward on the bench but um, no I would agree I don't I think you have that fle- flexibility that Frawley gives you and you know we saw it in the Italy game as well even with uh, Carly going to 15 so would you can I throw a curveball? Would you any any thoughts on having? See, I thought McCluskey was brilliant uh, against Italy. Would you go with if you went with the five three? Would you go McCluskey and Ringrose uh, on the bench? Just because they just get, I'm I'm purely thinking getting your best players in there and being able to like it's such an attritional position in the centres. You'd love to be able to you'd love to be able to take off whoever has the better, more kind of physical game, either a key or Henshaw. Pretty hard to pick generally, but say one of them does have a you have the option to take the two of them off, or if you, you could take one of them off and put Ringrose into the backfield somewhere uh, to slot in, or you know, and you still yeah, have, you're, then you're probably leaving Ryan Baird out for McCluskey. No, no, that's that's the point I'm yeah. making. You know, you, you you do say you wanted to keep that five three and have a little bit of optionality in case there's an extra injury in the backs and you're kind of you're apprehensive about having a 6-2 split is it would you have McCluskey in there given that you've got Frawley in the team what do you think it's an interesting one because I actually do think McCluskey played really well against uh, against Italy 
All of a sudden, you're really Four beefy. Four Sanders in the 23 ages. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> no, like, but no, but so Ring, like, Ro- Ring Rose gives you the optionality and you still yeah. have two out halves. Yeah. Oh, you know, that seems Florida like a Rosie Erasmus kind of selection where he's yeah, like, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, was just, I just thought I'd put yeah, it out yeah. there because it, it occurred to me as you were talking. I was like, well, what would you, if you're thinking about being really physical at home, which I think is going to be the key against any Gatlin team, you've got to be really, really physical. 6-2 is the obvious one because, you know, we've got so much quality there. Like, you know, a lion, like you never want to be leaving him out. Uh, you've got obviously Baird playing great rugby and he just gives you your line out solid, your scrum yeah. out solid. You're so good around the pitch. That's the obvious one for me. But it's, if you went the other way and you said, you know what, I just want to have three backs, would you still would you pick McCluskey and go, you come off the bench for 20 minutes and just bulldoze everything in front of you? And you've still got Ring Rose who covers your backfield but can also give you the little bit of... I don't know, that bit of X factor that Ringrose does have with the footwork and the pace. Uh, just a thought. I don't Did know. Come in on that, Jonathan? Yeah, it's it. I never actually thought about it, to be honest. It is interesting, but um, Farrell's obviously shown throughout his tenure something that an awful lot of international coaches aren't really, really willing to do in having one center on the bench. I'm sort of trying to rack my brain if I've ever seen two centers on the bench. Um, Quite possible. And I suppose in that instance, then you're really saying Ringrose is on the bench as a utility. He's the utility guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as as the back three. But I would, I suppose, what your problem would be there is if Frawley gets injured, then what do you, you know? What do you do? Well, I suppose it, who goes to fullback or Frawley yeah. gets injured? Well, if if Frawley and Crowley gets injured, like it's hard hard to manage against that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you could you could say that for any game, you know. What, what yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Injured, you know? You're but, goosed. Um, <laughs> there's only so many. Yeah, yeah. There's only so many utility guys you, you can have. Just giving me real Springboks to World Cup vibes. I'm just not like I'm You're not, not into it. it no. I'm not into it. It's giving no. me the selection ick. I think. You know, but if you if you consider him as a as a real as a as a as a viable back three option, which I do consider him as a viable back three option. Um, Ring Rose. Ring Rose. Yeah. Then it's not really two, it's two centres who play there regularly, but it's also a guy who genuinely and a winger. A centre and a yeah. winger, yeah. Well, I certainly don't think there's any point in having Harry Byrne there with two out half it, it seems overkill to yeah, me. Like, there's no suggestion at the moment that, that that would be the case, but I just, like, look, looking at it, I think I would go 6-2. I just, I just don't want to see Ryan Baird edged out because he's unlucky in the fact that he's basically competing against the captain for a spot in yeah. the starting team. Yeah. Like, if Peter Manny wasn't the captain, Ryan Baird would have a much better chance of being in the 23 as it is I don't like unless they go 6-2 I don't think your yeah. captain's not going to be sitting on the bench yeah exactly I uh, say it, like the, the sort of the devil's advocate argument of this is that if Crawley gets injured Crawley goes to 10 and Harry Byrne sorry Crawley goes to 15 and Harry Byrne comes on and plays 10 I think that that's probably the eventuality where you want Harry Byrne on the bench but yeah yeah maybe it's not as yeah, to be fair, that's all. I mean, that, that does make sense. Yeah, yeah. Does, that does make sense. And that's what that's what they have done. Like Crowley has has gone back there, you know. So yeah, they're comfortable doing that, and it's very much a like for like with uh, Frawley. Okay. They're very similar players. We'll finish up now with the left wing moment of the week in association with Bank of Ireland because we want to touch on the, some of the provincial action, chiefly the Ulster game, and I know Luke's moment uh, is related to that. But first, I want to give mine. It was I think the Irish team welcomed in Stevie Mulrooney, who sung the uh, Ireland's call at the uh, Italy game. The probably the best bit of the atmosphere of the game. To be fair, it was a great rendition. And then they had um, oh his name Dara. Oh, his surname escapes me. But uh, the, the fan from Monaghan who came in, he was also over with the Liverpool team a, a short while oh, ago. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah so but, he's talking to Paulie, was he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buddy Yaki's favourite player. Oh, it's just great scenes and it's great like the players obviously busy time of year Six Nations but to take the time out to bring two kids in 
kind of make their dreams come true I thought was just brilliant and I think you can find those clips on, on the RFU Twitter it was really good and the other moment of the week completely different was Ron O'Gara after are, an we, allowed, are, how many, are we allowed of all these two what's it, I have two that was one moment that was one moment that was one moment it was an umbrella moment oh, your, this, two your wholesome eight. moment and then your rugby moment my okay. rugby moment was Ron O'Gara saying after Lara Shell's defeat to Leon at the weekend when they lost a big lead that his, he knew it was coming during the week because the players were more focused on property prices in Ilderay and Lara Shell than on the game he had a proper cut of them a classic kind of French rugby you know top 14 kind of taking the players to task it'll be interesting to see how they respond this weekend because by their standards their season has been a little bit patchy and he's really hasn't he didn't spare any prisoners at the weekend so it'll be interesting to see what kind of bounce back he gets from that Jonathan I'll go to you next or I don't know what your moment is or maybe I should go actually I'll go to Luke first <laughs> uh, don't let him take my moment although I feel like this probably won't uh, be a joyful one for, for Jonathan particularly uh, it's the Dan Edwards drop goal to win the match I mean obviously in contentious enough circumstances based on um, Dan McFarlane's interview post game um, it's gonna, Osprey's beating Ulster sorry, Osprey's beating yeah. Ulster sorry yeah so it was uh, it was a brilliant piece of skill under pressure um, breaking Ulster hearts and obviously as I said there was some kind of contentious stuff after the game about some decisions that that uh, that happened throughout the game but um, doesn't bode well for McFarlane I'm a little bit worried about him I think I can see I can sense kind of some of the bigger voices kind of the little bit of uh, disenchantment what's going on up there Um Jonathan will be able to speak obviously more closely to that but I just I'm worried now I think he's been there quite a while um, don't know if the project has moved on um, as much as it probably as much as they'd want I was going to say should have but I feel like he's been pretty unlucky throughout his, you know different like kind of key players injured throughout the you know you think of Addison now is Addison heading back to sale you know there's kind of a few things like that where you're kind of going he was a key player for them you know Vermeulen was you know he was good at different points but kind of injured for, for parts of it you know he's that kind of key guys that I feel a little bit for him but the project hasn't moved on I don't think and it's probably coming to crunch time now this season, I think. If things don't go well, I just, I can sense some of the mood music around Ulster not good for him. So um, kind of watching that space closely. They might rally late in the season, but I, I can't see it at this point. Just on the Dan Edwards drop goal, like I didn't see the game live, so I was watching back the replay. Like it, Serious skill to get that. There was guys in his face, the oh, hands up. Like, that was skill. one of the Wild. better drop goals you'll see because was, he was under a lot of pressure. Um, Jonathan, before we get your moment, just on Ulster, because um, as I said, I was watching back the highlights. Like, and if you had freeze the game just before Jake Flannery throws that intercept, with Ulster 14 9 up, men queuing up for the try that would have sealed the victory. And if, if you'd freeze it then, you would have thought for all money they were going to get away with a, a vital away win. As it stands, we know they didn't. The drop goal breaking their hearts. And to Luke's kind of talk about Dan McFarlane, it does feel like this is kind of coming towards the end of the road. The last couple of results have been really poor. You know, that, that New Year's Day victory over Leinster feels two seasons ago, let alone two months ago or, or not even. Like, well, what what's your perspective on things in that regard? I just think that, you know, the league table says a lot. Like, they're sudden eighths. They're in the ERC playoff positions by virtue of games won. They've lost six of their last nine. They've lost, but moreover, you know, they've lost 16 of their last 31. You can go back to the start of December. 2022 like since the start of that month they've lost more games than they've won so they've been a bad team really like don't let's not sugarcoat it they've been a bad team for 14 months like and they've got too much talent to be getting results that are that bad over that long a stretch so it's not a short it's not a short-term thing and I think whenever they have results like that Leinster result that you mentioned or you want to go back to the Rassing result or 
even this time last year when we were sort of having similar conversations and then they reeled off five league wins in a row. Like, the blips are getting longer and the uh, high points are getting more isolated. So it's just not a good picture, basically, at the minute. Um, you know, Luke sort of spoke about, uh, talk about players leaving. Obviously, that's all related to the need to uh, trim the wage bill because even in relation to the other provinces, they're uh, they're overspending or they have been overspending. Um, and that obviously has to come to an end as well. So it's not, uh, doesn't seem like a particularly great place to be. It's hard to see where the improvement is going to come in the short term unless quite literally 10 players find form again that they haven't been able to find over the last 18 months all of a sudden. Um and it's really, yeah, making the playoffs is important, but the loss of prestige that they would suffer from missing out on the top eight and therefore missing out on the Champions Cup next season and essentially going what would then be a minimum of a year and a half without playing a top-tier European game, I think would be massive. And I think at that point, you would see just... Not even anger. I think you would see apathy, which is even worse, because you would end up losing revenue, whether it be through ticket sales, whether it be through sponsorship, commercial, yeah. that you need. Because you, it's hard to uh, remember a time when Ulster's balance sheet has looked consistently worse than it does now, and that's something that they need to rectify before they even think about anything else. Right. So. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. I thought did, did that cancelled game against La Rochelle has just become an absolute killer. Like not being able to get that game got you know on and, and get that full house in Kingspan that they would have gotten financially was a disaster. Mm. Yeah, but you know, like a lot of people are pointing that, and you are right. Well, but like that's four hundred and fifty grand, right? Last season, that doesn't explain why they're still going to be posting a loss this season and why the projections for the year after that are bad as well. You know, it's. I think that was a like that was a massive, massive mess up, right? But it was isolated to one year. Like the financial reports, whether it be through money lost through COVID, whether it be the fact that they have less home games in the URC than they once had, whether they had less uh, home games in the Champions Cup than they once had, these are all factors, and they are all things that Ulster can point to. But also at the end of the day. The other provinces are having to deal with these as well, and they're not on target to post the losses that Ulster are on target to lose. So, like, getting the house in order first and foremost has to be the priority. And then you start wondering about what sort of squad you're left with when you've cut the wage bill to the point that you're going to have to cut it. And as I said before, it's just like an awful lot of players need to find form that they were showing two years ago because there gets to a point where players have been off form for so long that that old sort of adage about uh, form is temporary, class is permanent. People are going to start doubting that because if you're off form for as long as you've been, there is no guarantee that you're going to get back to the level you were at two years ago. There comes a point where you're not that player. You know what I mean? And so there comes you're, a point where you're not that team. Yeah, yeah. Like, they are consistently saying they're a better team than their results show, but 
they've been this team for 14 months now. Yeah, they remind me a lot of United. They're like really, like really inconsistent, I think, you know, um, and, hard, and and must be tough for the supporters. You know what I mean? Just when you're trying to bank on them, having a big performance, they kind of let you down, you know. And look, there's been some bad luck along the way. There always is in these kind of runs. But I don't know, I, 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 sometimes, I, I sometimes feel like Rugby, particularly, a change at the top can really make a difference. I'm not call. I, I'm not calling for that yet. I do rate Dan McFarlane, but I just wonder, like, is there someone that you could find? Is there is there a Joe Schmidt? Is there someone that could just re-energize the place? I, I still think that there's good players up there. I'm not suggesting that. I know I've made the suggestion that are you still a good player if you've played badly for this long? Um, you know, or are you just a very inconsistent player? I still feel like there's enough quality up there that I've seen that if everyone's pulling in the right direction and doing the right things and there was a confidence and a swagger about them week to week, you would see the consistency and you'd see what those players truly are. Whereas at the moment, I just don't know. I don't have a feel good. There's not that feel good factor. I'm, I'm not feeling around Ulster. You know, I'm feeling like it's a bit... Um, flat up there and as you say like it becomes a bit self-perpetuating those those kind of cycles you know like one team begets the other the results don't come that way as Jonathan called it that apathy that you, you know among supporters that's really really dangerous you know um, you know you get people not showing up and all of a sudden you can't afford to get your kits off so you can't afford to get these you can't afford to keep Henderson these kind of things start happening and it's very hard to find a way out, but I think someone at the top in rugby can can change those things. So that will be interesting to see if they're considering that. It'll be interesting to see. I know he won't directly be responsible for Ulster, but David Humphrey's obviously coming into that new Sephora. Like no one is more steeped in Ulster. Mm. What influence he could have in terms of maybe uh, getting players up there or, or maybe any improvements. And there are also victories for Leinster, Connor Dan Munster, and great to see Orgy Snyman finally make his return for Munster. Could have a big end of the season. But we'll finish up, Jonathan. You can give it on a more positive note now after that. Sorry to put you through. You can give us your moment of the week. Yeah, there was ne- there was never any danger of me stealing Luke's moment of the week. To be fair enough, um, yeah, I'm gonna, gonna gonna go back to the top fourteen and just the uh, the four tries scored by Paul Gray for uh, Toulouse against Orient. Obviously, everybody's speaking about uh, Antoine Dupont and his departure to sevens and what that would mean for Toulouse. Man, that takes a shirt first up, scores four tries. So I thought that was great. Yeah, well, fair play to him. I, I doubt it'll be held under the jersey for the rest of the season, but it's not <laughs> not a bad start. On that note, I'd like to thank Luke and Jonathan for joining me on tonight's episode of the Left Wing Podcast. We'll be back later in the week with another show reacting to the Ireland team announcement. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>